So I don't know if you know, but there's two kinds of people in the world. There are. There's, there's the people that look at the instruction manual before they put something together. And then there's the people that ignore the instruction manual and just go for it. I fall into the former category. Um, I'm an instruction manual guy, and part of that is because God did not give me the gift. We're talking about gifts tonight. I am utterly void in the gift of putting things together. In the gift of being handy, that's not me. Um, this has been illustrated many times in my life, but recently, well, this is a couple of years ago now, when we were moving into a house in Tucson where we used to live, I had a couple of friends come over to help put some things together, and we had a crib for our second child, and the crib had been taken all apart, and you know, there's a million pieces and a million screws, and I'm trying, I'm trying just not to get the bags that the screws are in confused. And... Um, we're all three going to put this together. And these two guys, my friends, just happen to be in the latter category of the two kinds of people in the world. They are the non-instruction manual types. And so I went to go get them a drink of water or something like that. I and mean, we hadn't even gotten started. I was gone for 45 seconds max. I come back and this crib looks like, well, it looks like you know, a Mr. Potato Head that a two-year-old has put together. You know, like parts are sticking out in all sorts of random places where there should be no parts sticking out, where there should be smooth, you know, the gate going up and down. There's no gate. There's like a wheel. And uh, it was a mess. It was a disaster. And at that moment, I had the opportunity to lovingly and gently. It wasn't really loving or gentle, but I was able to remind my friends that it's really important to look at the instruction manual. And I got up on my high horse for just a minute and talked to them about how important it is to go over the instructions first. Because I would have sat there probably for an hour with this instruction manual folded out, looking at each step, step by step. Because I know I'm going to mess it up if I don't read through the instructions first. But eventually, we did get the crib built. Now, listen. The Bible is not, the Bible is not primarily an instruction manual, okay? That's not what I'm saying. The Bible is a story. It's God's story of how he's redeeming this world. But the Bible does contain instruction. (laughs) And it particularly contains instruction regarding how we are to live in community together. Uh, Because I'm not sure if this is going to shock you or not. My suspicion is that it won't. That's hard. Uh, As we get to know each other and as we seek to be in deep relationships and the people that you're closest to in your life, your family members, etc., those are often the places where conflict comes up first. It's hard for us to live together as God's family well because we're by nature sinful and selfish. And so part of the Bible, large parts of the Bible, especially Paul's letters, which we're studying tonight, Ephesians, help us understand how to live well together. And that's what Paul begins doing for us tonight in Ephesians chapter 4. Okay, so we've been going through this awesome letter that Paul wrote to an ancient church that he planted himself 2,000 years ago. And he wrote this letter to instruct them. They were a young church plant in a place where most of the culture was opposed to them, much like us now. And this church read this letter, and then they passed it to other church plants in the region, which is modern-day Turkey, by the way. And all the churches read this letter, and the letter was intended to remind these Christians, to remind these people whom Jesus had saved... Of what the gospel is, which is what we've been studying for the first three chapters. Ephesians 1, 2, and 3 is really about what God has done for us in Jesus. But it also reminds us about how we are to live in light of that gospel. And starting here in Ephesians 4, that's where Paul goes. And really for the rest of the letter, all the way through the end of chapter 6, he gives us very nitty-gritty, practical instruction about how to live well together. They are... They are, as it were, an instruction manual for our relationships. 
And the image that Paul uses, if you look at the text with me, the image that Paul uses for how we are to live together, for the Christian life, for our relationships and our experience is the image of walking. Look in verse 1. He says, I therefore, prisoner of the the Lord, urge you to walk, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Now, why does Paul say walk? Why doesn't Paul say, I want you to live the way I've called you, God's called you to live? He uses a metaphor. He uses an analogy. He says, I want you to walk. I think part of the reason, right up front, we need to get this. Paul's saying that I want you to walk. God is calling you to walk. It's because walking takes time. Walking is a process. Paul does not say, I want you to run. He says that elsewhere, but he's illustrating a different point. Here he's not saying, I want you to run, because the process of living well together is not fast. (laughs) It's slow. He doesn't say, I want you to skip. (laughs) Because the process of living well together is not always happy-go-lucky, and you're not always going to like it. He says, walk. Walk. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And then that verse is sort of the theme for the rest of Ephesians. He begins to work that out. What it means to walk together as Christians in this life that God has called us to live. And so tonight what I want to do is look at three different ways that Paul, in these verses, calls us to walk together. Okay, three things. We are to walk, to walk in unity, to walk in diversity, and to walk in dependence. Walking in unity, in diversity, in dependence, okay? We see first walking in unity. Look at the first few verses there, particularly verses 4, 5, and 6. What is the main word that you see again and again in those verses? One. There you go. There is one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, etc., etc., etc. Paul has in mind here, if nothing else, the idea of oneness. God's people, he's saying, once they understand the gospel, once they get what Jesus has done for them, are to be one. They're to be united. They're to love one another and live together as a whole people. Now, we've talked about that a lot already in Ephesians. That's a big deal to Paul in this letter and in the other parts of the Bible that he wrote. He's talked about how the gospel makes us one, how the dividing wall that formerly created racial hostility and ethnic stereotyping. All that has been broken down in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are one new humanity in Jesus. And he talks more about that here. He says that we have have one testimony. That's really what he's saying in verse 5. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. If you're here and you've placed your trust in Jesus, if you call yourself a Christian... To a large degree, Paul's saying, your story is just like the stories of the other brothers and sisters sitting around you. You've been baptized into his family. You've been given a faith that is vital and living because of God's grace. That unites us, our testimony. We have one family, he says, verse 6. There's one God and what? Father. Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. We have one, verse 4, identity. We are one body and we are filled by one spirit. We've been called to one hope. So there's many things that unite us. And as we walk in life together, as we attempt to be in relationship with one another, we're to do it in a unified way. Very, very easy, theoretically, to grasp. grasp. Very, very difficult, practically, 
to live. Which is why Paul here doesn't just tell us the theological truths, although he does tell us that, and those things are foundational. He doesn't just say, you're one body and one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, go for it. He tells us how we are to mimic and live in that way practically. And in the first couple of verses, especially verse 2, that's what he's doing. He's saying, how do we how do we maintain the unity of the spirit? How do we have bonds of peace? How are we really going to be one people? How are we going to walk in unity? And he uses a number of words there, but the key word is the first one, verse 2. You do this with all humility. Don't miss that, okay? The only way for unity to be cultivated in our lives and in our church is when humility is first cultivated in our lives and in our church. Now ask yourself, why? Why does humility build unity? You ever thought about that? You might be shocked, but I have some thoughts. Um, I think one of the reasons that humility builds unity is because humility is by its nature other-centered. Humility, humility doesn't think of itself first. It thinks of someone or something else first. Humility, in a sense, is, um, is not, it's not think, as C.S. Lewis says, it's, it's not thinking less of ourselves. It's thinking of ourselves less. Pride, on the other hand, the opposite of humility is, is the exact opposite. Pride is the way of life where we have our own very narrow grid. You know, the prism through which we view life. And if anything or anyone doesn't fit in our very narrow prism, they are dead to us, right? We look down upon them. We scorn them. We abuse them, usually just in our head. And sometimes that comes out in our words. Pride is, is not self-effacing and other-serving. Pride is self-serving. You know, pride is, in many ways, the original sin. Pride blurs God out of the picture and story of our lives. But humility, humility points to God. Humility is, is really just living out what is very true theologically. And that is, we are creatures, not creator. And because we are creatures, we are not in control. Because we are creatures, we do not call the shots. Because we are creatures, we don't get everything going the way we wish everything would go. And because we are creatures, it's very, very good that we don't get everything going the way we wish everything would go. Humility gets that and therefore shows us God. Pride, pride blurs God out of the picture. So humility in a very real way points us upward. It points people not to self, but to God and to others. Pride does the opposite. And the reason that that cultivates unity is because that is beautiful to be around. You know, you, you can't stand being around proud, arrogant people. You know that, right? They drive you crazy. They drive me crazy. Part of the reason, by the way, they drive me crazy is because I'm proud. Part of the reason they drive you crazy is because you're proud. But when you're around a humble person, it's just, it's just wonderful, you know? Um, they, they seem to take a real interest in you. They seem to really listen. They seem to really want to know about your story and your life and your struggles. It's, it's something that you want to be around. You leave and you think, wow, that was amazing. That was remarkably rare in my experience. It's because that person's expressing humility. And when people together express humility, what you get, what you get is unity. 
C.S. Lewis, uh, as usual, has a great quote. Let me read it here so I don't butcher it. A great quote about humility. Um, this is from his chapter in, uh, on pride and near Christianity. Here's what he writes. Do not imagine that if you meet a really humble person, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be sort of a greasy, smarmy person who's always telling you that, of course, he's nobody. Probably all that you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap, very British, a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. Now, you see, when you get a group of people together who are exercising and working on humility, you begin to get a group of people together who have unity. Now, we're very young in our church. And if you've been in any church for more than five minutes, you know very practically the importance of this sort of lifestyle if things are going to go well. And God has already given us multiple opportunities in our young life together as a church to cultivate this sort of spirit of humility which builds unity. To do what Paul's saying here. To show humility and gentleness and patience and bear with one another in love. And so I want to encourage us and encourage myself that when conflict arises... When someone bothers you here, that is not necessarily a sign that it's time for you to start looking for some other place. That's a sign that you're finally starting to get to know people. That's not a sign that God's not at work here because your rosy dream of what the church should be has been shattered. That's a sign that you're really becoming a part of the church. And that's an opportunity. An opportunity for us to exercise this characteristic by God's grace. The characteristic of humility. Listen, none of us are going to get exactly the church that we want. I'm not. And none of you are. And that is a good thing. It's exactly how God would want it. Unity does not mean my vote always wins. Unity means that together we all express humility and the Spirit's power wins. God wants us to walk together in unity. But, verse 7, he also wants us to walk together in diversity. Look at that. He's been talking about this oneness again and again and again, right? Beating us over the head with it in verse 4 and verse 5 and verse 6. Then verse 7, interesting transition. But, grace was given. Look, don't miss it. Stay in the text. Grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. And then he begins to talk about the ways in which we are different. He's talked about how we're one, how we're singular, how we're united. And now he talks about how we're not the same, how we're different. Uh, there's a great book that was published a few years ago by a, a gal named uh, Doris Kearns Goodwin. It's a historical book called Team of Rivals. And you heard of that? It's about uh, Abraham Lincoln. And his cabinet during his term as president during the Civil War, right? And one of the interesting and, as far as I know, relatively unique things about Lincoln's cabinet is that he made all of his cabinet members, you know, the Secretary of War, which is a key position, obviously, during the Civil War. Uh, the Secretary of State, Secretary of Treasury. The key cabinet positions were all of his rivals. They weren't like his political henchmen and cronies. They were the men that he had run against, like in the primaries, he took these guys and brought them into his cabinet, hence the name Team of Rivals. These guys were really, they were political opponents. They had always sought to, to one-up the other. And Lincoln, in a heroic feat of leadership, and a very difficult feat of, feat of leadership, brought them together. Because Lincoln understood that unity does not equal uniformity. 
He got that you get real unity when diversity, when people who have different characteristics and different dispositions and different gifts come together for one purpose. It's a great book, a fascinating book about leadership and about the Civil War and about people. So you should read it. But uh, it's, a great, it's a great example of the church. But Paul's not talking here when he writes about unity, about us being uniform. That is all exactly the same. The vision of the church is not, you know, it's not like imperial troopers in Star Wars. You remember that? When they're walking like onto the Death Star, they all look exactly the same and they're walking in perfect sync, you know? That's not the church. That's uniformity. The church has diversity in the midst of unity. And Paul talks here about a couple of ways in which we are not just united but diverse. Look at the text. First of all, in verse 11, he says that we have different gifts. He gave, Jesus gave gifts. He gave apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers. Now, those are all leadership offices in the church. And I could say a sermon on each of those. But the point for now is simply this. Paul gave, or God gave to various men and women, various gifts and various functions. Apostles were the foundational piece, as we saw in 2.20 of the church. They saw Jesus in his resurrected state, and they sort of started the church off. Prophets did their thing, evangelists theirs, pastors and teachers theirs. But the point is, leadership in Jesus' church is variegated. It's different. It's diverse. And if leadership is diverse, then surely everything else follows. Jesus gives you gifts that differ from the gifts that other people have that are sitting around you right now. So there's diversity in gifts. There's also diversity in ability, however. Look at verse uh, 7. Grace was given to each one according, now look at this word, according to the measure of Christ's gift. Part of what Paul's saying there is that not only do we have different gifts, but we have different, we have different capacity levels. You know, some of us are spiritually running on a 10-gallon tank. We're driving like a, a Prius. Some of us are driving like a big diesel SUV with a 40-gallon tank. We can just do a lot. Uh, we have a lot of gifts. We have a lot of energy, a lot of capacity. It's all according to the measure of Christ's gift, you see. Jesus gives gifts to his church, and those gifts are diverse. They're various. They're different, both in the capacity and in the actual gift themselves. But the question arises again. It's really, really easy to sit up here and to sit for you to sit there and think, man, unity and diversity, that's so beautiful. That's so wonderful. That's so cool. I love that. Go church. Boom. Let's go. What's for dinner? It's much, much harder to live out both unity and diversity. So how do we do this? <laughs> We've talked a little bit about, about how we are to functionally be unified, humility. Now, how, how do we express in healthy ways diversity as we live life together? A couple of things, briefly, okay? First, you've got to realize that gifts, listen, gifts are gifts. Whatever spiritual gift God has given you, if you are a believer in Jesus, he gave you a gift. It is not something that is innate to you. You were not born with a gift. Now, some people, you know, maybe you're born with just a knack for maybe, you know, whatever, public speaking. And then they become Christians and God gives them a gift of teaching. And so those sort of mesh well together. But the point is, gifts are gifts. They're from Jesus. And Jesus has the right to dispense the gifts however and to whomever he wants. And so when we get that, hopefully we're able to be 
more comfortable with people being different from us. Listen, Jesus is the king of the church, not me and not you. Jesus is wise in his kingship, and he gives just the right gifts to just the right people. So you've got to get, if you're going to get diversity, you've got to get gifts. Gifts aren't your innate tendencies. Gifts are gifts. You've also got to get that you are needed. That, that really is the point of verse 12. He talks about these gifts that he gave, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. And then he tells us the purpose, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. So leadership gifts, pastors, these guys like me that get up and preach, our job in a real way is to equip you to do ministry. My job is not to come do ministry and you just sit and watch. My job is to equip you to do ministry along with me so that we're doing it together in diversity. So all that said, it's important to get, listen, that you are necessary and needed no matter what your gift is. You've got to get that you're needed, but you've also got to get that others are needed. You see, some of you need to hear tonight that you're needed. Because you, maybe you've been in church for a while and you haven't ever really been in a leadership role or haven't done much. And you really just think, you're not sure, maybe you're not sure what your gift is. Or if you know what your gift is, you think it's pretty, pretty cruddy. It's not of much use. You know, I, I, really, I really can't do much for the kingdom. My gift is like a JV gift at best. Maybe freshman basketball gift. Um, you need to hear that you're needed. Your gifts are necessary. Every part of the body has an essential function. But some of you need to hear that other gifts are needed because you think your gift is the only gift. You think, man, if everyone else could administer or teach or pray or give or do whatever the way I do it, this church would be a lot more healthy. Listen, you are not the only one on the bus. There's other people that have gifts that are valuable Nay, essential for the upbuilding of God's kingdom. You've got to get those things. We've got to understand that if we're going to do the work of ministry and walk together well in unity and in diversity. Okay? Paul wants that of us as we walk. He wants us to be unified and he wants us to be diverse so that we will grow. Verses 12, 13, 14 are about that. So that we will have an increasing amount of Christ-likeness. So that we will more and more measure to the stature of the fullness of Christ. So that false teaching will not wipe us out. So that when people come in who are wolves, we won't be destroyed by them. So that craftiness and deceitful schemes won't just undercut our work. Unity and diversity in our walk is essential for these things to take place. But... Finally, Paul says, all this is great, but you've got to walk in dependence. Got to walk in dependence. Verse 15. Look, rather, instead of you being immature and being thrown about by the waves, here's what it should look like if these things are happening. Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head. Into Christ. Now, get this. From whom the whole body, when joined and held together, Grows. Listen, the body is not going to grow if you don't get that you're not the head. The body is not going to grow and you're not going to grow if you're not consciously dependent upon Jesus as he offers himself to you in the gospel. You cannot get unity by trying harder to like the people sitting around you. You cannot get unity. 
By trying harder to be less annoyed. <laughs> let's just let's aim low. To be less annoyed by the people around you. It's not going to do it. You cannot get diversity by claiming to appreciate other people that just by an exertion of willpower and effort. The only way you get unity and the only way you get diversity is when you depend on the king, the head, the gift giver himself. You see, Jesus, when you believe and depend on Jesus, you get real unity. Because when you believe and depend on Jesus, when you see that Jesus offers himself in the gospel, he died on the cross for you and for others, and he was raised again from the dead, and you received that gift by faith alone. When you, when you believe that, when you're like exercising faith in that in your daily life, unity can take place because you're no longer comparing yourself to everyone else all the time. Comparing yourself to everyone else all the time never produces unity. It produces disunity. But when you believe the gospel, you get that no one compares to the real standard except Jesus. And when you trust Jesus, the comparison games can go out the window and real unity can begin. You're never going to get diversity and appreciate other people's gifts and long to be in partnership with people who aren't like you if you don't believe the gospel. Because only when you believe the gospel... Will you stop being judgmental and self-centered? And will you stop thinking that your way is the only way and your background is the best background? Only when you see that you were so bad and they were so bad that Jesus had to die on the cross for their sin, will unity and diversity take place. And only when you see that you were so loved and they are so loved that Jesus was willing to die on the cross for their sin, will you begin to love other people the way Jesus loves them? Only when you get dependence. Only when you understand grace. Only when you see Jesus as the head, as the gracious, loving king of his church, will you begin to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. You can't get and live Ephesians 4, 5, and 6 unless you understand and believe Ephesians 1, 2, and 3. Dietrich Bonhoeffer um, was a Another, get used to my book recommendation. Just keep a running list of book recommendations for me. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, great biography on him called Bonhoeffer by uh, Eric Metaxas. It's a beautiful book. He was a 20th century preacher, German preacher who lived during World War II and was murdered by the Nazis because he became a spy. Amazing story. Um, when he was a young man, Bonhoeffer was a brilliant guy. Uh, genius level man who decided he wanted to be, wanted to be a theologian, but he, w- he wasn't really a Christian. You know, For him, theologian was just like becoming a doctor or, or a lawyer. It was sort of a noble calling in the 1920s in Germany. And so as a part of his calling, he went to study in a, at Union Seminary in New York City in the mid-30s for a couple of years. And when he was at Union Seminary, um, he, he wasn't really a Christian, but he was really, really smart, and he loved studying the Bible. And he went to all these churches in New York in the 30s that were mainline liberal churches at the time, and, and, and he just didn't get anything out of it. He couldn't stand it. No one talked about the Bible. He didn't like it until he found one small little church in the middle of Harlem in the 1930s. It was an African-American gospel church where they sang the great African-American spirituals. This German guy in the 30s. Where the Nazis are at. (laughs) Goes to an African-American, Bible-believing, gospel church. And there meets Jesus. And there there begins to understand community for really the first time in his life. And and as I was reading the book, I was just stunned by the mental images of this white. You can't be whiter 
than a German in the 30s, right? This white, you know, very, very white Dietrich Bonhoeffer in the African-American church with all the various worship styles, all the various cultural backgrounds, loving one another. He ended up teaching Sunday school to third graders for the two years that he was there. And the only thing he says in the book that got him at that church was grace. Grace was proclaimed there. And when grace is proclaimed and Jesus is made known, you can get the sort of unity in the midst of diversity that is impossible through any other channel. You want that? You want that at Christ Church? Look to Jesus. Let's pray.